On today's episode of the Launchpad Podcast, we are talking about Steven Silas's tenure as the Rockets head coach, whether Chet Holmgren can fit with uh, Rockets current center Alper and Shingoon, and a deep dive into Shaden Sharp. So don't go anywhere. We have a great show for y'all today. Welcome into the episode of the Launchpad Podcast presented by Clutch the Control Room. As always, I'm your host, Don Nock. I'm joined by my fellow host, Paolo Alves. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Don Nock. You can follow the pod at Clutch City CR. You go to the bio on that account. You can find the link tree that has Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and of course the YouTube link. Um, again, we're doing really well on the YouTube subscriptions. And we're getting close to 750. So if y'all have subscribed already, we want to say thank you. If y'all are thinking about subscribing, please do. And uh, don't forget to leave a comment. We've been pretty good about replying to the comments lately. So we love seeing those. Everyone that has left a comment, thank you for that. Paolo, tell the people where they can find your stuff. Yeah, y'all can find me on Twitter at NBA. That's P-A-U-L-O-A-L-V-E-S-N-B-A. Everything I do from podcasts like this one to the last shows on Twitter spaces will find itself linked on there. And today we are joined for the second time, but the first time in our new home, by founder and <laughs> author on TN Rockets. I think I have that correctly. Yeah. Uh, from across the pond, but a little bit closer to Paolo. <laughs> Yes. We have Nathan Fogg. Nathan, thanks for joining us. Tell the people where they can find all of your stuff. Anytime. So I'm at TN Rockets, but my Twitter handle is at NathanFogg1. Perfect. So we have a very interesting show for you guys today. We're going to talk about Steven Silas and kind of his time as a Rockets head coach. We're going to talk about Chet Holmgren a little bit, um, whether Chet can fit alongside Alper and Shingoon, and then just like a little bit of general uh, Chet talk. Obviously, Paolo and myself, well, our Paolo and myself uh, aren't exactly Chet chums. I, I don't know what the, the technical term for those is. Chet chum boys. There we go. Um, then we're going to talk about, we're going to talk to Nathan a little bit about his feelings on Paolo Bancaro. Obviously, our Paolo and myself are a little bit uh, in the front of the bandwagon uh, for the Bancaro bus. So that should be an interesting discussion as well. And we're going to talk about Jaden Ivey potential fit with Kevin Porter Jr. And we're going to close the podcast out with some talk about Shaden Sharp because Nathan just watched a bunch of Sharp. So he's going to be our resident expert on him. So moving on to the first segment or moving into the first segment here, Coach Steven Silas, right? I remember back to when the, the safe spaces started. Uh, there was a big facet of those safe spaces that was like, Coach Silas doesn't run anything. They're just out there running around doing cardio, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, I was one of the people that was like, you know, they are running stuff like it's not working great and it's not like generating an advantage, but they are running stuff. And I think since that time, there's been kind of like, I think some people came a little bit back on Coach Silas as the year went on, you know, the losing streak ended and Jalen started to play a little bit better. Um, Shingun started to play a little bit better, but there are some people that did not come around on coach Silas. There are some people that, you know, there are some people that want him fired. We won't get too much into that. There are some people that, 
they already kind of have their eyes set on another coach for the Rockets when Coach Styles' time is done. The name that you hear a lot is Kenny Atkinson and sometimes Mark Jackson, which well, I was not personally. You're missing the big one. Who's who's the other big one? The the popular one on Twitter is is the Vipers coach. Uh, coach. Coach Abdel Fattah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, definitely another popular name thrown around there. But Nathan, we're gonna go to you first on this. You know, how has your feelings on Coach Silas, or how have your feelings on Coach Silas evolved throughout the season? Um, and you know, from last season as well. Where are you at on him now? And you know, do you think that the team is in good hands generally in terms of how he's been able to develop some of the young guys? In terms of development, yeah, I think I think we are. Um, it's funny because like. You get so into the weeds on a driven season. I mean, we can all be on board with the tank and the rebuilding or whatever, but like you still have to watch the games and you still have to watch, you know, 120 losses in two seasons. It's kind of rough. And it's funny because before the season started, I was probably the most pessimistic out of anyone I'd seen on NBA Twitter of like trying to tell people we were going to win like 20 games rather than 28. So I was like more prepared for it. But even still, even I got kind of like sick of losing and was kind of on the fire Silas bandwagon for at least like a few days during the one and 15. Cause I just thought the stubbornness and, you know, I'd seen him kind of play the same way in Dallas, which was this lead league and offensive and try and bring it into uh, John Wall and James Harden, which makes sense. And then trying to bring it into John Wall and Victor Oladipo, which made less sense. And then trying to bring it into Kevin Porter Jr. And then Jalen Green. And he's like, he's just trying to run the same shit. And it's kind of like, are you just too stubborn of a coach where you, you figured out this one great thing in Dallas and now you're trying to apply it to everywhere. Um, and then, you know, but running with a double big lineup for 16 games, you know, when I we don't know anything on NBA Twitter, like we're so stupid. But like that was one thing that I'm confident I knew better than Steven Tyler stuff after like three games. Obviously, you've got to wait for data and you've got to like let it play out a bit and you can't overreact. And I think one of the things that people do is overreact to like, oh, this 10 minute lineup has this net rating. So we have to play that. Um, but that was pretty obvious after, you know, a, a couple of weeks of, of, uh, of basketball. But um, I did want to him at the end of the season. So I've been re-watching some games recently of like the end of the season stuff um, for some prep work. I'm going to do some videos on it. But um, I kind of got a sense of what we were trying to run offensively. Um, my big issue was with him offensively was that we just didn't have any variation in our sets. And I think we started to add that, um, which makes sense because obviously you've got a lot of young guys and rookies. So maybe we didn't have any like decoys or counters. So for example, the weak side stagger screens, we would run those the two weak side staggers and you would just have Jalen Green run over them. And that's just like a very predictable one. It's so obvious when you're setting up it as well because it's so the way you yeah. set up the every it is pretty common play among the nba so all the defenders going to be in the corner coming up yeah and you can see the screen is setting up um and it was yeah. like they just missed every fucking time um and then by the end of the that, season, that plays like burnt like when you said that i was like yes this play is burned yeah. into my memory for how many times i saw oh. it this season but then by the end of the season it's a great way to set up an offense when you've got like 50 different ways of countering it because you can run hot uh stagger twirl where he runs around curls around the first screen and it's the first screen and sets the screen for the second screen and you can reject the screen so you can just run baseline into for a cutting action you can run pick and pop you can go into a ball screen you can go into miami offense you can go into two one it's like it's it once you've got the like the tree of offense you know where you can go into 50 different counters and decoys that's when it becomes really impressive and you know you how is how is the defender overplaying Jalen green is it going under screens and all that so once i started to see him actually run that um i was like okay no this does this can be a functioning offense and I got an appreciation for what I think Silas is trying to do. So what, what I think a tenant of Silas's offense, offense is, 
is to try and clear out the corners. So there are a lot of empty corner pick and roll, which everyone kind of think knows. So you've got no one in strong side corner and you can just run the pick and roll. Um, what I think we also do is like, because they run this three man weave action. And I was trying to think like, what the fuck is this actually? Like, what are we trying to do? Where it's like right wing, pass to the center, pass to left wing, then back. And I remember Ruth William called yeah, the embarrassing I've... because I, sorry, you could say. Yeah, I'm, that's another set that I have burned in yeah, my memory as well. I think a lot of times, people yeah. who played, because I didn't play high school basketball, I just played with friends or whatever. But I think a lot of like play people in America who played high school basketball think that's kind of like embarrassing because it's like such a high school set to do. Like you just do it over and over again. Um, like horns, basically... horns is horns is a very like elementary set yeah. as well, but a lot of NBA teams are able to get good stuff out of that. So oh, it, horns is like yeah, really, it's classic. Yeah, it just depends on what your personnel are, right, and what, what kind of advantage you're able to yeah. generate. The these reason looks. the reason why they run these uh, sets is I think they like to have as many players above the break as possible, so that they could all have players on the corners. Because if you just think of a very traditional pick and roll offense, so if you imagine like James Harden with Houston. You have one guy in a strong corner. You have got two guys weak side. James Harden's going left on a pick and roll. Every defense in the NBA is going to bring the left side, uh, the weak side corner man as a help man, the low man over to rotate. Then there's two shooters weak side. You've got one defender left who zones up in between them. He runs to the first guy, uh, where whoever the pass out is to. Then somebody else rotates behind him. It's very conventional. That's how every defense is run. But what what Houston tries to do is they only have one defender weak side corner. So if you've got three guys ahead of a play. Um, above the break um and then if you can get in behind the defense there's only one guy weak side so once he helps there's no one to rotate behind him or it's a longer rotation rather than being two guys weak side so they try to do that a lot and with three man weave if you do that if you can get in behind if you can slip a screen there's only one guy in the corner i watched a minnesota timberwolves game if anyone like randomly wants to watch a game watch the timberwolves game in may or whenever it was like they fucking destroyed minnesota's defense by doing this uh and minnesota like collapses like against a really heavy like collapsing defense that really helps because like they just they just the nearest man just comes in all the time so i kind of finally understood have to spend more time with it like what they're trying to do and like houston's offense was a bit better towards the end of the season like it wasn't amazing but i think it was like 109 or 108 offensive rating which is still like really bad but it was closer to sort of 20th than last which isn't like amazing but when you're the you know when you're the youngest worst team in the league that's actually if we were 20th next year that'd be like a big improvement so so that's by the end progress. of year, that's what you call that progress yeah, like 20th in offense and 20th defense and like with the 20th team in Miami that'd be like huge so um uh so yeah I I, co- I I we we do run stuff uh we run a lot of uh actions now and we're starting to get and and, and unfortunately we'll probably take a step back going into the next season because we'll bring in more rookies and young players and that's why I think we could it could be back to square one again but I I, I got the sense of what Silas is trying to do once once everyone's familiar with the play so, you know, on that note, bringing in a new player for next year, which, you know, we could revamp some of the offense. I think that's a good point to segue into Chet Holmgren, right? And how you would fit Chet Holmgren into what the Rockets are trying to do now. Because, you know, we've heard a lot of people talk about this. Gonzaga had a player that, you know, maybe isn't, you know, A to A with Alperin Shangoon, but a player that can function in a somewhat similar role in drew timmy right so you would think that if you bring chet holmgren onto the rockets some of those pet sets that they ran at gonzaga you would see those being integrated in the rockets offense so what do you think that the team would do if they brought in chet in terms of trying to fit him in with shangun do you think they would use some of the gonzaga stuff do you think they would try to keep using some of the stuff that we saw this year or or what do you think would play out kind of in that integration process 
Well, I think it works perfectly as a floor spacer from a dunker spot, um, which is something that I think Houston could benefit more of consistently throughout the season, um, filling the dunker spot. Um, so what they do when Shengun posts up, usually it's a guard they'll run a rip, uh, rip cut. So a rip cut is you post up and then someone cuts to the dunker spot basically on the opposite block. Um, and usually that was like Kevin Potter Jr. or whoever en- made the entry pass and you kind of clear out the strong side. But imagine if you have Chet in the opposite dunker spot when, when Shengun's posting up. That's like obviously an easy like four or five lob attempt to think of like the Josh Smith, uh, Dwight Howard old like four or five passes. Um, Paolo, you're too young for that. Um, which makes me feel good because I was always the guy who was new to Rockets and now I'm like a vet, a wily vet. Um, oh, and then so and then you, and it's hard to double baseline because like Chet's baseline. So I think it works, you know, spacing wise. Um, the question is going to be, you know, getting into secondary offense is the biggest issue Houston has. And what happens if a first player breaks down and now it's like, oh, okay, so Chet's setting the screen, but Shengun's kind of stood on the perimeter. And they like to have Shengun stood on the perimeter because he can ISO and he can drive really well. And he's one of the best, actually, ISO players in the league per tracking, just because it's for go, going into a handoff, reject, and then just drive on your, on your like, the center who can't keep up and hand checks and fouls him. What happens when there's two of those guys just chilling on the perimeter? They have to get so much better at the spacing and the positioning, which we kind of figured out towards the end of the year, but was a huge problem for them at the start of the year where they just had the wrong guys in the wrong place. And I think that's going to be really, really rough with Schengen and Chet to start with. I think it'll be some growing pains. Do you think if, let's say they want to use Shingun out of like the post, mid post, or Shingun at the top of the key, do you think that they would be able to run Chet off of screens? Or do you think he's more going to be used, especially like in the early years, as like more of a stationary guy or more of, like you said, in the dunker spot? Like, do you think he has the potential to, do any shooting coming off screens or, or running off of multiple actions? Yeah, I mean, they kind of did that for Christian Wood, but then they stopped. I like to have it. Yeah. About around November, they kind of ran three point plays for Christian Wood where he would flare off a screen and he has the touch to do that. And then he kind of like stopped doing it. So I hope they bring back some of those sets for Shengu, uh, for, for Chet if they do that. Um, because it would only be a couple of steps out to the perimeter. If you're running horns, which you'll run a lot, so you, you, you know you can have Chet run across uh, Shengun's screen into horns and then flare out. I mean, it's it, you know it's not like um, you know these huge movements. It's it's you know you, you're at a high post at the elbow. So yeah, I, I think so, and I would like to. do and that's kind of um, I think I, I think you have to do that to be honest. Uh, you know, I think double bigs, triple bigs are coming back in vogue because of Cleveland. But if you look at how Cleveland plays, they play really traditionally. Really, um, you know, Larry Markkinen is a sniper and they play him as a floor spacing forward. He could be 6'5 in that offense, basically. And they put Mobley in the corner and they run high pick and roll with Jarrett Allen. Like, it doesn't matter that they're, you know, they're not doing anything super fancy with the fact they're all seven foot. They run a pretty traditional pick and roll offense. So that's something you could try and do with Chet as a screen, uh, sorry, with Shengun as a screener and Chet as a floor spacer, just just for a few sets, just to have like, just if, it, if the offense is getting like gummed down, just to use him as a floor spacer, basically. But Chet has to get better. Sorry, Shengun has to get better in pick and roll because his pick and roll finishing was was pretty poor at times last year. And you had mentioned uh, the the staggers coming out of corners and, and things like that. Another set that they ran a lot last year was double drag. Um, yeah. Do you think putting Chet and Shengun together in a double drag? Do you think they could get any good looks out of that, or do you think the spacing would be better off having Chet in a corner because you know he is a good shooter? No, well, yeah, they like to they like to um, clear out the corners, like I said. So they, they would definitely run double drag. And one of the thing, good things I like about Chet is that he's shot what thirty nine percent in college. But 
I think like ninety seven percent of his shots are above a break. So he's not just yeah. you know getting easy corner shots. Um, you know he can shoot from from deep and above a break. So he's he'd be well used to you know you have Shengun Ro, you have Chet Pop, and it's very predictable action. You can kind of know you could do the same thing every time where the one guy rolls and one guy pops, but it's still very um, effective. And that's what they did in Dallas where Powell would roll and causing this would uh, uh, pop to a three point line. So they'll do double drags. They'll do. Yeah, all sorts of double screening. Um, I'd like to bring some elevator screen. Elevator screen is like my favorite play in college, but no one ever does it in the NBA. But the elevator yeah. screen with Chet Hongren would be like, it'd be like, it's, like, it's not very wide. <laughs> it's, it's kind of too yeah. skinny. Guys. <laughs> yeah, Shingun was probably our best screener last year. I think it would be interesting if we do draft Chet and Christian Wood is still on the roster to watch those guys as screeners um, yeah. because they're both kind of like, uh, Chet's not as... I'm going to slip everything every single time as Christian Wood is. But like you said, you know, he doesn't really have the frame to be setting, uh, we'll say Steven Adams or DeMarcus Cousins style screens where you're just really you know, blowing the entire yeah. play up. Which is not what you need for a ball handler a lot. Sometimes you want to slip and as long as you get behind yeah. the hip and, and it's a quick movement. I think the problem with Christian Wood slipping is that he slips so he can guard, so he can post up a guard. Um, and that's the wrong mismatch. A mismatch is when Jalen Green has a big on the perimeter, not when... Uh, Christian would have switched onto a guard on the, in the post because he can't score there. I have a I have a question about about the chat stuff. Um, so you you've talked about the the fit on offense, which I think was, is something that hasn't been addressed um, when people talk about chat. But what what a lot of people ask about it in these group chats that we're on and in the in even on Twitter is what about on the defensive end? Like how can Chet and Shingun work together I, I just a couple of arguments that people make is people see people say oh well so you if you run chat at the four then you're wasting a little bit of his rim protection which is, which yeah. is his best attribute but if you run him at the five can he handle fives and can Shingun handle being closer to the perimeter uh, I think um, how do how do you see that dynamic working do you think it will eventually develop uh, into uh, one or the other do you think there's a world where they both can work what needs to happen for that for that to be a thing well, yeah, I'm one of those people who thinks, yeah, if it's like, oh, well, check and guard the perimeter. Even if he can, he's still you're still drafting because you think he's going to be the best rim protection in the NBA. So you, you do want him at the rim, uh, and you are wasting. Um, it's like drafting um, Malachi Branham and saying you're not going to shoot, you're going to stand in the dunker spot. It's like he's a shooter. That's what he does. So, um, it, I mean, it'd be great if check can guard the perimeter. Obviously, versatility is really important, but you know, rim protection is 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 the best asset he has. Um, I think defensively, I think I think if we draft Chet uh, and we play him with Shengi, I think it's going to be like pretty awful for a while, to be honest. And I think like that's a definite recipe for getting a top pick again. Um, so it's everyone's going to freak out and stuff. And uh, but it, Wemby, you know, Wemby, Wemby, I know Wemby, <laughs> I mean, it's like Wemby yeah, um, and that's not to say we shouldn't do it because I think Chet's the best player on draft, uh, and I think long term it could work. But like we're probably going to play like Tate at the three. And Chengi number four and Chet number five, and it's going to be like the worst spacing you've ever seen in your life. Um, but defensively, worse, worse than the worse than the Tice double big lineup. Uh, that's probably, probably. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm have to mentally prepare for that starting right now in case it's it happens. I'm going to tell people like we could be worse next year, even if we take a step forward eventually. Um, yeah, I think. It, and, and to be honest, I think you need to play Chet before because you want to protect his body as he's going to be putting on muscle and like eating Texas barbecue and all that. And, you can play him at the five for 20 minutes a night, or you can play him at the four for 30 and, and um, you know, have Shengi into the five. So basically, what I would do defensively is I would just give them both run out on the perimeter because they're both going to get better. Both going to have to get better at the perimeter anyway. And the, def and the offense is just going to put whoever the weakest is in pick and roll anyway. So I would just like try and try and 
give both run out. You you can't protect one or the other. Um, think about that later and see see over the next couple of years if either of them can get good enough at funneling into the other. Um, and let's pray really hard that Shengun has a growth spurt and adds a couple of inches. <laughs> yeah. Um, another thing, something that were, was brought up on the space um, last night by someone who will probably be our next guest on Tuesday. Uh, so stay tuned for that. Was what if and and as you, as you know, I'm not the biggest X's and O's guy. So he was explaining this to me, and I was like, okay, kind of makes sense. Uh, what if you ran chat in a role like? And the, the examples that he that he talked about was uh, Giannis in Milwaukee, uh, Robert Williams in Boston, and I think those those were it. Those two were I think those two were it. No, he think? had a third one. I can't remember what it is. I, I remember what you're talking about now. It was those two, and keep, I mean, keep going. I'll see if I can think of what it was. Right. So do you th um, like do you, do you think that's something that could work? I think by the by the way he explained it to me was well Chet kind of just hangs around the, yeah. the rim. It was someone on Dallas. It was someone on Dallas. I think is who you mentioned. Basically, like playing free safety or whatever. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. That was the exact comparison. Yeah, I mean, yeah, definitely because I mean, all the questions about um, who you know can check guard big fives or whatever. Um, and they probably can't, but I think you know you could put Shengun on them or maybe Garuba hopefully one day. Um, and then if you have Chet uh, coming weak side, then then that'll be very effective. Like if you're trying to guard Joel Embiid, my hope is that Garuba can do what PJ Tucker did one time where uh, for a while where Houston would have PJ Tucker on the on the big man instead of Clint Capella. Um, and then Clint Capella would help. So if you could put Garuba on like an Embiid and if Garuba can just be strong and like hold his position and not foul, which would be a big ask, but like he has got a big body. So maybe one day or maybe it's Tari Houston or whoever else. Maybe it's a guy we sign, and then if you have Chet like as the weak side help man or as a rim uh, as the sh a weak side job blocker, then suddenly you're trying to you're getting doubled by like a seven foot to you know nine foot standing reach, you know whoever. So like yeah, role as a Roma um, as someone helping a rim, yeah, and he's got great blocking instincts as well. You know he's not like a Walker Kessler who's just trying to block everything. He's 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 very good with his timing, and if you see him, if you see him switch onto guards, like he he gets beat and then recovers from behind and, and box at the exact right time and. For someone who's so, um, you know, someone who's trying to, who is trying to block, he doesn't foul all that much. He's not, no, he's not elite at not fouling. And there were players like Evan Mobley last year. One of the reasons I was so high on him is like he just never, never fouled. Yeah, I, I was uh, looking at that number yesterday. I think it was one point eight fouls per game insane. for yeah. Mobley, and then like two point seven or two point nine for yeah. for one point eight a game um, when you're yeah. Evan Mobley is absolutely insane. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so Chet's not like elite at that, but he is good. He's it is good enough. Like he's not a foul merchant, so he can come in and help, and he's got a good time on his block. So yeah, I, I think that is something they should do. Yeah, use him as a as a as a realm. All right, are you pleased with the Chet discussion, Paolo? <laughs> um, yeah. The general thing I'd add is if you go back and you watch Isawa at Gonzaga, and I think he plays that role for Gonzaga, right? I think that's kind of the same thing that he does. Yeah, like Drew Timmy will take you know a bigger man. Um, I actually would hope that whoever drafts Jet tries to get Drew, maybe as an undrafted free agent, if they get a promise from him, just like just to just to bring him in. I, I would try and do that if I was Houston. I, I, it gets a bit crowded with Garuba and maybe Wood and Shengu, you know, whoever. But like, I, I would try and do that if I, whoever drafts him. Yeah. So um, the only thing I would add to it is we, we don't need Drew Timmy because we have Drew Timmy at home, aka uh, <laughs> Shengu. <laughs> yeah, you can play forty-eight minutes with Drew Timmy. Yeah, that's an option. Um, so the, the only thing I, I was going to say is uh, the thing about, about Chet playing that role is 
he's so long that he's also going to be able to when even when helping like even if you if the the big makes the extra pass he's so long that we've seen him yeah. at Gonzaga uh recover to to the corner shooter and, and sometimes even block the shot because he's so like he's so long that he doesn't need to get really close to the shooter to bother his shot like he can get in the trajectory of the ball of the jump shot even really far away from the play and that those are some of the plays where you're watching Chet in, in, in college and you're like, I don't see many dudes be able to do this in the NBA. And that's that's uh, one of the like the like those wow plays where you're like, okay, this is why this guy is a top three pick at the very least. Yeah, yeah it's really I, I think I think for me, yeah, seeing what, seeing if that element of Chet's game, right, being able to close out quickly, being able to, to guard on the perimeter, I think that's defensively the one swing skill that is, you know, even a little bit up in the air. I think the rim protection will probably translate. I think um, his defensive like field, defensive IQ, I think that will translate. He's a very smart player. Um, I think that's the one thing that, and obviously the the frame, That's I think that's a long-term thing. I don't think that will, if we were to draft Chet, I don't think that's going to be something that plays out over you know six or eight months. That's going to be a multi-year thing that we have to see bear out. But the being able to close out, being able to get to shooters, um, out of help positions, I think that's going to be what I'm going to be watching for, whether he ends up on the Rockets or not. Um, this is a good place to break. So when we come back, we are going to talk a little bit about Paolo Bancaro and why Nathan thinks that we should not draft him. So don't go anywhere. We'll have a great segment for you when we come back. And moving into our second segment here on the Launchpad Podcast with our super special guest, Nathan Fogg. We just talked a little bit about Coach Silas and Chet Holmgren and what integrating him would look like. We're going to move on now to one of our favorite topics, but a little bit of a different spin on it this time. We are going to ask Nathan why he doesn't think that obvious and clear-cut number one draft choice, Paolo Bancaro, should go to the Rockets. So, Paolo, you have been leading the charge with the Paolo propaganda. So I'm going to let you have the first shot to ask Nathan what you think about or why he doesn't think we should draft Paolo. So I'm going to be really honest. And I think this conversation looks really spicy, but it will end up <laughs> not being that spicy at all because there's one argument that anybody could make that I can, that I'll, my, my only answer is, well, I just, I disagree. And there's not really much to, to talk about further than that. And the thing about that argument is, Nobody is making it, which is why I'm so pissed off on Twitter all the time. Like everybody's giving me these arguments that don't make sense. And this is like this really easy one that nobody's making, which is as simple as this. I don't believe Paolo can be the number one guy or maybe even the number two guy on a championship team. And if 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 he's not that guy, then I'd rather get an elite role player in Jabari. Or and that's like that's the argument for Jabari that I can accept really easily. That's the the argument that um, Dave Kutlans makes. When 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 you talk about Chet, I can totally understand taking Chet number one. I can totally see the upside. I can totally see how valuable a player like him is. He's a player that we've pretty much never seen before. Like there's a lot of upside just to that fact. And I can totally see Chet like I have Chet like head to head with Paolo like really close, right? Um that being said, I think the reason I push so much propaganda is I feel like there's a disconnect between what Rocket sort of thinks of Paolo and what Paolo actually is. I think it's definitely a lot closer than, than people make it out to be, right? I think people underplay 
Kibari's flaws. Uh, I think people, I mean, it's so much about Kibari versus Paul that Chet just gets lost in the mix. That's why like some people don't want Chet, but then like the most vocal ones usually either want Paulo or, or Kibari. I, I think I think Clutch fans has done a really good job, like inserting yeah. Jabari into that slot and really pushing it. And like we, he yeah. did the poll the other day about you know who do you want if the Rockets are the number one overall pick, and it was like fifty percent Jabari, uh, twenty five Chet, twenty five Paulo. So, yep, I think. The thing about Ted is he's really polarizing, right? You you either think he's the best or you think he's not going to work. And a lot of that comes from from his frame, right? Um, but yeah, I think that that's the reason I push back so much on Twitter. It's like people just outright discard him. People just outright say he's Julius Randle tops. And I'm like, but Julius Randle is such a different player. Like Julius Randle is two inches smaller, way dumber. Um, <laughs> Which sounds really bad to say, but it's the truth. Like Julius Randle is not a, it's not a smart player, right? Uh, and uh, Nathan, just 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 put me out of my misery here. Just put me out of my misery. Just tell me why he's not going to be great. I I never said he wasn't. Like I I like Paolo. Um, I would be like very happy if we get him. I'm just he's just lower on my board than Chet and Jaden Ivy. Um, I think Chet and Jaden Ivy. Yeah, I have Ivy too, man. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Wow, it's taking an interesting turn here. It's taking an interesting turn here. I, I did my research between before choosing the topics, dude. <laughs> yeah, if anyone wants to know why I have Jaden Ivy second, go to T and Rockets on YouTube because I just did a fifty-minute-long scouting video on him, all with uh, film. So it was. Uh, yeah, I'm after. Only why I'm like, I look really disheveled and I've got a neck beard and I look like I'm just walking <laughs> just because I've been working on Jaden Ivy and Shin Sharp videos all week and I'm not slept. Um, yeah. Anyway, Paolo. Um, Bankero. Um, yeah, whenever I watched him, I was just kind of like, what is this guy very good at? What is this guy elite at? And I think, unfortunately, he didn't show why he was elite at. Because when I was watching, when I, at the start of the season, um, I was expecting him to have this great shooting season. I thought he could be like 50% from a mid-range, 40% from a uh, three-point line. I just thought, this guy's got such a beautiful shot, and he's a shot maker. Obviously, he takes tough shots, so that, that kind of uh, reduces his percentages a bit. But it's hard not to be disappointed when you're looking at a guy who's, you're asking to be a number one option, um, and he's shooting 33% from a free, and he was just so such a lack of aggression with it. I think it gets weird with Duke a lot, uh, and I think it gets weird with college offenses a lot. But <laughs> to, to be fair, it'll get weird with Houston's offense a lot as well, so it's hardly a, hardly a, <laughs> a consolation. But I just, he wasn't that exciting to me. And I, I think the, the the athleticism wasn't what I thought it would be. The three-point shot wasn't what I thought it would be. The defense, I have an issue with. Um, I wanted to tweet this out, uh, but I fell asleep before we could do a podcast. But so I haven't given you a chance to watch it. So I was going to tweet out every, so I clipped every isolation play on defense because Paolo, you did the tweet where it was um, uh, Paolo Banquero has the, he's in the 88th percentile or whatever on isolation defense. Um, so I went to watch all the clips on Synergy and like, he's not very good. I mean, he gets, um, uh, that's, that's quite misleading. Small sample says on it, it's only about 50, 37 possessions, but um, he he does a pretty good job when the guard is driving into him and he's driving one way and he can shuffle his feet and he kind of puts his arm up over him and like puts, you know, deters a shot attempt and he can shuffle his feet. But anytime it's kind of like left, right movement, um, he can't really flip his hips. He's very stiff in that uh, area. And, um, you know, he he cheats a lot where he'll go, he'll shuffle that first step to try and, you know, um, beat the guards on the drive. But, like, he's so susceptible to the pull-up because of that because he's always given up too much space and he takes the first step, he's too reactive. So, so I think his defensive numbers are um, misleading a lot. And I think he will struggle in space. 
Houston uh, in the NBA. Uh, is worried because the team around Jalen Green uh, and Emperor Junior and Alperen Shingun and Paolo Banquero just doesn't fit defensively. It's just it's just not going to work. You can't have. I don't care if you have the best defender in the world as your four or a three or whatever. Like it's just not going to work. Um, and unless some of those guys get really better and. Jalen Green can get a lot better. Shengun can get a lot better. Paolo Mancaro can get a lot better. But it's like a lot of bets you have, you're hoping on all of them to get better. Like you're hoping on all of them to improve quite significantly. So I'd rather have like a couple of guys that I know what they can do. Um, and I think, yeah, the fit is just it's just a big question mark to me. That's not to say it won't work. And it's not to say I won't be like super excited if we get him in the pick because I think he's got a lot of talent and he clearly works very hard. And I'm not like a hater or anything. I think he could be the best player in the draft 100%. But um, his fit with Shengun, especially like the doubling up of the post moves and offense, Shengun likes to go in the post, Paolo likes to go in the post. Is, I just don't really understand how it's going to work. Right. So the thing to me is, I just don't consider whatsoever what the fit is. I think um, I think I'm lower than most on Shengun, and that doesn't mean I'm low. It means I'm lower than most, right? And I, I don't count the fit with him whatsoever. I think you can, if you're bad next year, who cares, right? So you, you can play it, see how it works. If it doesn't work, you can make a decision down the line. It could even turn out that Shingun is better than Pau, and Pau is the one you trade. Um, then the thing on offense is, I agree with you. I think what Paulo is, is not what Paulo was at Duke. I, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of little things that, to me, point that way. I think he was definitely trying to defer. I think he was definitely understanding that he wanted to be a team player, and that he was deferring, and he would go kind of like what Jalen Green did in Houston, where he wouldn't demand the ball until it was like, you actually need to demand the ball here. So he would just let the offense play itself out. And then the other thing is, he is very much an ISO player. And the mm-hmm. most most of the ISO that he got with Duke was in the post. And I don't think his best attribute is as a post player. I think his best attribute is as someone who starts in the perimeter, who gets a little bit of momentum going and and... and and tries to collapse the defense that way, and he can he can like fade away back to the jump shot. He can he has a spin move to get to the rim. He can just bulldoze his way if his defender is weaker than him. Um, and then he has the threat of the jump shot, which is to me which is weird. Why the jump shot the, the percentages weren't better? Because as you said, his jump shot is beautiful. Like it's not Jabari, but it's it's he's very on balance he there's not any hitches he that there's no like particular things that are concerning with, with the jump shot and i was also expecting him to shoot better but apparently he wasn't a great shooter in high school anyways so that, that's also uh, the thing with me is that those are things that at least the jump shot those are things that you can just grind out and and that's if if your form's good your shot going in is something that you can fix the other thing for me with him is he takes some bad shots, and I think with in the fact that he was willing to take to like to the first so much at Duke to me tells me that he is a player that's willing to listen to what the coaching staff has to tell him to what the team needs him to do, and I don't think it's a stretch to to expect him to yes a lot of moves right I don't I don't think it's a, a stretch to expect him to trim down a little bit on that and maybe be a little bit simpler on offense but more effective kind of what. James Harden did when he came to Houston. Uh, he took the mid-range away. Like I'm not saying Paul should take the mid-range away because that's a big, um, big uh, weapon of, of his. But to some extent, in, in certain situations where he just settles for for mid-range shot, he is a tough shot maker. But there's there's situations where you should do that. There's situations where you shouldn't do that. You should look for a better shot. Um, that being said, I think I also I've said this and. 
it's one of the more ridiculous arguments, but I, I really believe it is. He came to Duke to play the four, and there were there's Wendelmore, there's AJ Griffin, there's like you're not gonna play the three pretty much ever. You're gonna play the four and you're gonna play small ball five at times. And I really believe that he just bulked up to play the four for Duke because he and if you follow Paulo, Paulo has wanted to go to Duke two, three years ago. Like this is this is not something that he picked. He he had already picked way, way further like back. And so I totally believe that if you wanted him to be more of a perimeter player, he could lean out a little bit and be a little bit more mobile. Does does this mean that he's going to fix all of his defensive issues? Does this mean that he's going to uh he does look slow on the court? Does this mean that he will be just lighter on his feet to a, a huge extent? No, but I think it will look a little bit better. And I think so much of Paulo's career in the NBA will be what his NBA team makes him out to be, right? What what do they think he should be as a player? Because you see, you look at him and you look and you see, well, there's pretty much nothing this guy actually can't do, right? He there's no um, so with Jabari, you look at Jabari and you're like, okay, this guy can't finish and this guy can't get off the dribble. When you look at Paulo, you see that he's lazy on defense. And he looks a little slow, but as I, if you mitigate that a little bit by what I just said, um, I think he is a player that you can you can make out to be. He's like a piece of clay that you can mold out to be di- not any kind of player, but different types of player. And and what his NBA team decides to turn him into will define so much of of what it, of what it will be. And my ideal version of Paul Mancaro as a jumbo forward, as someone who can play the three at times, who's a leaner version of himself, uh, with all his talent and with, with all his versatility, will would ultimately be the player that I look at and I'm seeing, well, yes, this guy is probably going to be the best player in the draft. That's a lot of question marks that I just listed out, right? The, the, you've got you've to get the right team and, and you've got to work on, on the fact that some of these suppositions that I'm presenting work out. The thing is, I don't see, I just, the only guy I can see having a similar upside if everything goes right is is Chet, because I think with Chet and Paolo, you can project these skills that you want you want them to acquire, and it doesn't look irrealistic because they're not building something absolutely from the ground up. That's To me, that's what they have over someone like Jabari, where it's a lot harder. The, the things Jabari needs to learn are things that are hard to teach and and we rarely see uh, players coming into the NBA learning them uh, to the extent that they will be needed for them to become stars. So that's why that's why I have Paulo and 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 Paulo and Chet number one. Um, and that's and then I have Paulo over Chet because a little bit of of the things you can't control is Chet's frame. I mean, you can he can bulk up, but that's one of those things that. It's not easy to fix, and it's more, it's a question mark that's not entirely up to him to know how that's going to pan out. And that plus me valuing the archetype that Paulo could become a little bit more because I, in my opinion, this is very much a jumbo forwards league. Uh, I mean, <laughs> even guys that weren't jumbo forwards like Kawhi, like um, Jason Tatum, eventually need to become that to be successful and to be the best the best player on a team. And LeBron James is the perfect example of that. I think that's the the ideal uh, engine on a team nowadays. Uh, and I, I really like, and I think the tools are there. The IQ is there. The work rate's there. The willingness to change is there. And I think when you have those things, just like Kellen Green has them, 
um, I think you're, you're likely to be successful. Um, and then, and then my last point after that is, I think his fit with Jalen Green is, is seamless. He's someone who will be more dom ball dominant, but then Jalen Green fits with any type of star because he's so proficient off the ball and moving without the ball. Um, I think someone like Paulo, which might not be Paulo on the line, but by my, it might become another different type of a making wing, is exactly what Jalen needs or is the, the ideal partner for, for uh, a prime version of Jalen Green. And that also is one of the things that sells me on him a little bit. But Don, I know you, you want yeah. to say something. So what I kind of want to talk about, uh, we talked about this a little bit on the space last night, and it's it's a little bit less it, – it brings Chet in a little bit, but it's really like a, a Paolo versus Jabari issue or framing of this. Like I was watching a bunch of, of Jabari film, and I watched a bunch of Paolo film kind of back-to-back, and I watched – um, like a good amount of their shot attempts on the season. And I ended up making, you know, two videos of both of their shot creation. And what I realized making those videos and watching all that film was a lot of times Jabari is he one, he's creating off the catch a lot or out of like a quick ISO. And when he does, he's taking like one or two dribbles and then he's either getting into a shot or he'll he'll change that drive into a post up. And then the turnaround is basically coming immediately or he'll take like a very, very heavily contested fadeaway or a quick step back. And a lot of times when you watch the Paolo film, it was almost hard to find a lot of times where he was pulling up. I ended up getting enough of them for, for two little Twitter videos, but it was like most of the time that Paolo was driving, he was countering and getting all the way to the rim. And I think that is the real difference between Jabari and Paolo for me was that Paolo was able to a use his handle to create the space to get to the rim, not as much using his handle to try to create space for the shot. Even it seemed like that was his primary goal was to get to the rim. Once he got to the rim, I think the finishing was a little bit of a mixed bag. Um, he finished well over defenders that were a lot smaller than him. They could really just body up. He finished questionably against really good length. I think sometimes he was able to get stuff off against great length. Sometimes the length was able to, to kind of get to him. Um, and then other times, right, when he was able to not have a help defender there, he's just going up and dunking it because he does have pretty good athleticism, pretty good pop um, getting to the rim. He's fairly quick, uh, at least offensively, in a straight line. And like I said, going back to Jabari, it just seems like the rim pressure for Jabari is going to be the real – is really going to be the thing that – that is the swing skill for me. People will say handle. People will say, you know, shot creation. I think he can create his own shot out of those quick one, two dribble moves and even if he's going to go to the post up in the turn, I think, you know, creating those shots, he can do that. I think the thing for him that is going to become an issue is can he get downhill to the rim? Because right now it seems like he just doesn't have the handle for that application specifically. He doesn't have the creativity and like kind of like the feel for that application specifically. And when he does get to the rim, I think he's not like a very physically imposing finisher. And he also doesn't have like a level of finesse to be finishing like really around guys or um, you know, countering with moves at the rim. So with that said, right, do you see, is that kind of what you see watching those two guys? And then I also want to, if you want to kind of bring Chet into the mix here, like do you think Chet's rim pressure is going to hold up against, is, I think Chet's, Chet's touch around the rim is going to hold up. I think he is a very, he has a very good foundation of touch and counters and finishes at the rim. How do you think Chet is going to hold up in terms of like 
trying to finish through contact at the rim? Um, well, I mean, I think it'll be fine. I mean, like Christian Wood can make some kind of bullshit shots in a similar way where it's just touching, like he can hang in the air and he's off balance and he's like getting knocked off, but he's got just got really long arms and he can just kind of throw it in. So yeah, it's like it's not like very pretty and it's not these great post moving hook shots, but it just kind of like, it's like forcing it in. Um, where you just kind of like push shot it in kind of. So I think I'm not really worried about Chet um, yeah, finishing through contact or anything. I think him as like a pick and roll option is like, he, he could be like the best, one of the best lob threats in the league pretty immediately. Unfortunately, Houston doesn't have like a single guard who can really throw lob passes like consistently. But, uh, <laughs> That's been a constant on theme on this show. <laughs> oh, yeah. Please throw a lob to someone. <laughs> yeah, hopefully it'll work. I mean, it's funny because like, I watched all my life watching basketball, uh, watching Houston, you watch James Harden, you just think like lob passes are like automatic like any other pass and you realize, oh, actually, no, not, not, not everyone can throw them. Yeah. Um, you've been blessed with some good point guards in Houston for a while, so yeah. Um, no, I, I just kind of say my conversation now because, like, all this pa- Paolo Jabari stuff, like, I'm um, I'm pretty ambivalent towards because I think like Ivor's fine, at, I, I have him three and four, so like, I, I think Jay Ivy's made them too. So, like, I'm like, um, and I'm gonna rewatch Paolo, Paolo's and Jabari's games, um, because I didn't really see the end of the seasons for them, but yeah, I mean, it's it's just the it's fit over 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 um over ceiling isn't it and i, and I like paolo uh, your point about his molding him into different um uh stuff that you want to do and, and how he's maybe a bit more of an unknown quantity where it's like i'm pretty sure i know exactly what jabari smith's going to be so like i i think it's just like a, how much of a risk do you want? My, my only concern is and like you kind of joke about this on twitter about like vibes over everything else and how like Houston's just a vibe team but like it's kind of also like true where like rafael stone just likes hoopers and like We've got the Seattle guys and like KPJ in jail and all the Mobley. Now, if it's if it's Bankero at number one, it's like it can just Hoopers win a championship. It's like Houston's going to be everyone's Houston's going to be the bold on stop favorite team, and I don't think that's a good thing. <laughs> but it could be a fun thing. I mean, I think at the end of the day, eventually, eventually, when I look about over the team with Paulo and Joe Green, and People are going to hate me for this, but eventually I would guess that it's probably Paolo and Jalen Green and a good defensive five and a couple of guys that can defend and shoot. And I think maybe you can get uh, like a third offensive option in there. Uh, someone kind of like a Drew Holiday who can be decent offensively, not a number one or a number two guy, but and then play good defense. That's kind of the, the team building that I expect. I, I, <laughs> I love these guys, and I hope they pan out. And if they pan out, that's great because now you've got a bunch of assets that you can get your pick of the litter. Um, but eventually, I, I just don't. I don't think all of these guys are going to pan out, and I don't think we'll reach a point where we're having trouble choosing between four hoopers, which are even even Chengun's a hoop. <laughs> um, um, and then I guess yes, I, I guess you you put it you put it perfectly. I think. The thing with Paolo is, and I don't know if you've ever watched his documentary uh, before the season. Yeah, guess, yeah. He says, people, my entire career has been the same thing. I'm so versatile that people can't put me into a box. And that's a little bit of what turns me, what turns people off on me is I can do so much stuff and maybe not be as elite as other guys at singular attributes that it's harder to project what I can be. Right, and he's been versatile his entire career. I think coming into the NBA, that's why I bring you can mold him into kind of whatever you want. You can, <laughs> I like to put it as, 
Kibari is a my player on 2k with max shooting and max defense and then like 25s across the board and then you have Paolo who is a guy with 65s across the board and you have like these 50 points left and you can put them wherever you want um <laughs> people are gonna tell me i'm fucking i'm fucking 2k i know this i don't watch basketball whatever um but that's kind of that's kind of what i mean i think and i think as a draft philosophy you should go for the swing for the upside and i think paulo has higher upside with his versatility um and yeah i i Something oh, I wanted to point out something else since since I've been so pro Paolo, one of the things that I that are kind of a concern to me, which is not really a huge concern, but he's not the most athletic guy. Um, I think one of the good things he has on athleticism is he's a good second leaper. Like he will get a bunch of a bunch of offensive rebounds, and when he is finishing, and when he sees that it doesn't have a much shot, much chance of at finishing, he will throw it off the rim in a in a way that he knows he can catch the rebound again. Um, like this is really noticeable if you watch him game after game after game. Like he he knows. Yeah. Like I'm not gonna I, I finish. The same thing. Yeah, I'm not gonna finish this. So I'm just gonna just gonna finish it and know where the ball's gonna fall, and I'm just gonna leap again. And there's there's a couple of highlights like that. Uh, it also happens in the video that Clutchman's posted uh, of uh, Paul being guarded by Jabari in back in high school. You can see you can tell a couple of instances where he's just throwing it up there because he knows he's gonna get it again afterwards. Uh, and that's another thing that kind of lowers his numbers because you're just you're throwing up a shot that's gonna. Uh, so if you made the shot originally, it it would be a one of one field field goal percentage. And yeah, but he's having to throw it up because he can't get separation. He can't get exactly. Shot. Yeah, not like, exactly. It's not like a saving grace, if you will. Yep. Um, but yeah, I think we've we've gone we've gone on for really long on this. <laughs> Yeah, I think this is a good point to take a break. Uh, we will have plenty more Palo propaganda where that came from. Uh, well, actually, maybe not for that much longer because the next time you hear from us uh, will be the draft lottery. So something important to keep in mind. Um, this is, you know, if you're a draft person, if you're a armchair analyst, a scout, any of those things, if you fancy yourself as, you know, this is we're coming right down to it. Once the lottery hits, then you know. We'll have a decent idea where this pick's going to go and probably who, not necessarily who we're going to take, but you know what options we're probably going to have in that range. But we are going to go to break. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Jaden Ivey, who, like Nathan said, he just finished a nice video about. And then we're going to talk about Shane Sharp a little bit. So don't go anywhere. We will be right back. And moving to our final segment here on the Launchpad Podcast with our guest, Nathan Fogg. Just finished talking a little bit about Paolo Bencaro and why me and our Paolo love him so much. Now we're going to shift into what Nathan has been working on recently, and that is a 50-minute, I believe, masterclass deep dive into Jade and Ivy. So what what did you find on Ivy? Why have you decided to rank him so high? I think it's a little bit against the grain. I was listening to the Vecini pod earlier today, and he's mentioned that there are a few other analysts that have um, Ivy in the top three and moving you know, closer to two. Did you put him in that slot for yourself? And why would you like a fit between him and KPJ uh, and Jalen Green as well? Um, well, I haven't. Too, I just have him really high because I think like his his rim pressure is is going to be like elite, and his first step is going to be elite. And, I don't, and you know, you watch scorers like Jalen Green and Ja Morant and Anthony Edwards recently, and you just kind of get a sense of how important that first step is. And like he's, you can't understand like he's lightning quick. Um, 
and he just gets downhill so easily and he's got a great he's got great handles great dumber he's not just like oh he's fast and he can't dribble um and he's the the you know uh, what i see when i watch him uh, is and i don't understand how others can't at least see the potential for this is like point guard or um modern day point guard where it's all driving kick and you know russell westbrook and john wall and De'Aaron fox can can get five or six assists a game just from um pressure in the rim and kicking out to corner shooters and like i think if you put ivy next to jalen green um and you know even kpj off ball where he's you know shot 48 percent on catching shoots last year um and he just have shooters around him like I, I i think i'm still very much in the um you know guards who can pressure the rim are the best offense rather than jumbo forwards as you were mentioning earlier with power i'm still kind of like in the i guess that school of form i've been dying out recently but i'm kind of trying to resist the all let's all have seven six seven six eight guys um and and what, what ivy is actually is like he is really strong like he's got a really strong frame uh he's like six four six five and seven foot wingspan and i think he can be a difference maker on both ends i think he can actually be like a pretty fantastic defender he's, he's um he's when he when he engages he's like really good going around screens he had a game against illinois where he was just like fantastic on perimeter just every and he's putting so much effort chasing and like He's just, I think he can be a two-way player um, who gets, you know, 20 and eight or a game or whatever. Um, I'm really high on assist making. I think that's what separates me from most is that I see, I see like, he put the ball in his hands in an NBA offense with pace and space uh, rather than this post-centric play that Purdue did with Zach Eady and Trevion Williams. And you give him the ball and clear out. Um, you know, you run pistol with him, you run two-one actions, you run, you know, you run him off Iverson cuts and all that. Um, and give him the ball, then like he's just gonna he's just gonna be an offense to himself because he's like this whirling dervish who just gets downhill and you know puts so much pressure on the rim. Um, the only thing that's missing is the in between game, which is missing a lot. But um, you know if he adds that, then he's yeah, it's like game over type of thing. I think watching a lot of Ivy for me, I, I did watch a number of games and a few of his playoff games or sorry uh, NCAA tournament games. It's just how when he's just moving around the court, he's just so. He takes like three steps and he covers so much ground, right? Yeah. He just, he, but it doesn't even look like he's trying. Like when Jalen tries to get going fast, you can see him kind of like he has the quick first step, but he looks like he's trying to go fast, right? With Ivy, he just kind of like moves around the, like a boxer, right? Just taking these like very powerful steps, and he does transition from those steps like into driving very quickly. I think his first step is really good, but it's almost kind of like Jalen, where like the second step really hits, and then he's just kind of out of there. And he and he, keeps that, such a, he keeps such a live dribble as well. He's got like a really yeah. low turnover rate in transition. Like you expect a nineteen-year-old who's trying to push a pace over time, and that's like his one calling card is in transition. And he only has like a fourteen percent turnover rate as a ball handler. Whereas like if you look at John Morant in Murray State, he's twenty-eight percent. And if you look at Russ and John and John Wall and like De'Aaron Fox, it's all higher. So like he protects the ball. He's got such a great handle, and like he'll show you the ball, and he's like and like gets a defending. Uh, reaching in him and he's just like gets right past you so he's he's got the handle as well he's not just he's not playing too fast for himself which is quite rare i think yeah especially like you said a lot of people have compared him to westbrook especially in the rim pressure aspect and you know the hallmark of westbrook was that yeah he'd have these amazing plays where his athleticism would just take over and he'd be getting downhill and at the rim and but when he'd get to the rim he just kind of went in without a plan i guess you would say or he just kind of went in out of control and a lot of people that have made the comparison to Ivy, they're saying, you know, Ivy is like Westbrook with that some level of playing under control, right? Some level of of having a game plan when he's actually getting downhill and getting to the rim. Um, the other thing I did want to talk to you about, Ivy, about was 
the shooting started off really hot to begin the season and kind of faded uh, as the year went on. Which Ivy do you think is the one, like the the real Ivy, right? Do you think the the beginning half of the season is what is going to translate, or do you think what end up happening later on in the season is, is what he's going to end up as his shot uh, yeah. from three? I mean, if if it was the early season, like for the first twenty games of the year, which is not not nothing like that, more than half a season, he was shooting forty four percent. Like if that was what he was, then he'd be like the number one pick, like clearly. And I did have him number one early in the season, just going off like a live board where I was changing every week. Um. But no, I don't think he's a 44% three-point shooter. I think his shot, uh, he pushes it out quite far out ahead of his chin. Uh, it's not perfect. Um, but he's very consistent and he gets into it very well and his balance is really good on it and he, his footwork's good. And he's, he can do it off a catch and, uh, you know, he, he does absolutely sprint from one end of the court round the basket into the other and, like, will shoot immediately. So, like, he, he takes tough shots. And the, the one thing that I like about Ivy is that he takes the most deep shots of anyone in the draft. So he takes... I think he's hit 43-point shots from beyond 25 feet, which only two other players in college basketball anyway in the draft even got into the 30s. So, like, you're looking at his overall numbers and it's 36%, I think, his three-point shot was. But, like, he takes fucking, like, deep, deep, deep threes. So, he's at NBA range and beyond already, whereas some of these guys are, like, more, you know, Benedict Maffron is a bit more close, hugging the, hugging the line, that type of thing. So, I would take mid-30s for him. If he can be a mid-30s three-point shot, then, like, take that to the bank uh, and, and the one thing that is encouraging is that his pull-up game is the exact same as his catch and shoot usually you've got like a athletic guard can't pull up and the catch and shoot is like 38 percent and the pull-ups are like 31 percent kevin Porter jeans this as well but he was basically 36 percent on both catch and shooting pull-ups as well so i think um, i think his shot profile uh looks uh gives a lot of important context um the only worrying thing is a free throw shooting do you think that damian lillard would be a better comparison for him than westbrook um, well, I mean, if he ends up like Damian Lillard or Russell Westbrook or even like 90% of us, like he's like the best player in draft he's like, so like, no, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, I think in terms of, yeah, taking those long, deep threes, yeah, he, he, he likes to pull up and, he, and he's got a really good step back as well. Uh, he can create space on the perimeter. So he's not just, um, he's not inside out in the way that Russ is exclusively, uh, or maybe how you want Russ to be exclusively. <laughs> um, also, also like to your point of the, Ivy really lacking the mid-range game. Yeah. One of the big elements of Westbrook's game early on in his career when he still had, you know, before the knee injuries and stuff like that is he would just come down and like stop and pop right at the elbow. And that yeah. was like a big factor of his game. And like you said, Ivy is going to have to either develop that type of shot or a floater or some type of mid-range game. Just if you want to become a three-level three level scorer and really be like the main offensive option as like a lead guard in the modern NBA. So definitely. <laughs> So my, my thing with Ivy is, and the reason I have him for, and and maybe even after Sharp, is I just see so many so many like clear holes in this game. I, I don't see why he couldn't develop those, but I see, as you said, the lack of, of like not maybe not a mid range game, but like an in between game. I see a guy that was really hot to start the season, and then as the season went on, for some reason, he was shooting badly enough to go all the way back down from 44 to, to 36. Um, and then last year, he wasn't a good shooter either. And we saw we saw Davion Mitchell and what happened with him, who had one hot shooting season and then at the NBA level. Um, I mean, he kind of picked it up to, to, towards the end of the season, but most of the season he wasn't that good. And I see the athletic tools. And 
I see, I see a lot of what Jalen is with Ivy. Maybe, maybe a little bit less polished as a passer. Maybe Jalen's a better, has a little bit more of an in-between game. Um, but uh, and then what? What I see is you see you see him like he goes up and he's more in control than Russ. But I still think there's a lot of times where and he's 19, this is normal. There's a lot of times where he does go up without a plan, and or, or he goes up with the plan set before he actually goes up, and he's like, "Okay, I'm going to kick to the corner, and if the guy is covered in the corner, then it's a, a turnover." And then you see in the the, the classic meme, he, he he tries to force the drive right in under any circumstances. Like he, it's really rare to see him actually drive left when the defense is giving it to him. And I just see, I see all the tools, and I just see. So many like weird holes that you'd expect him. Uh, like he's really young, and he, as I said, he could develop them. But I just see a lot of like things that he's really good at, and a lot of things that he hasn't developed whatsoever. And we, I mean, I, I guess we see, we see we saw like a couple of floaters as as the season went along because he he understood that he needed to develop that. But uh, I guess to me, it's just like he will need to go through a transition to be a point guard as well, I think, uh, coming into the NBA level. And the Rockets just spent an entire season doing that with KPJ. Now we're going to spend another season doing that with Ivy, and it, it's probably best employed on Ivy than it is on KPJ, right? But still, yeah. it's it's another season that we're going to have to go through with that. And the way, and the way I look at it, I just... <laughs> it's... I make all the arguments against fit, right? And you shouldn't take fit into consideration, but those other guys just slot in so nicely into a, a hole where we don't have anyone. Well, I think um, I think Ivy does fit very well with Green. The question is, does he fit with Green yeah. and KPJ? But does Paolo fit with Shengun? No. So, like, um, if if KPJ, right. you know, if, if you can discard Shengun as you know, um, he might not be here. KPJ might not be here. KPJ might not be that's, in six months. Um, that's true. So I, I, I think of it more uh, as like him and Jalen Green would be like the most athletic backcourt in NBA history, like be absolutely insane. And I just think of like Ivy getting down the hill in transition and Jalen Green relocating, you know, um, like hitting him. You know, he had a really good connection with um, uh, Stefanovic, I think his name is, the, the shooter that he heard you has who's like <laughs> trailing. Your, your classic white boy shooter in college. Yeah, Stefanovic, <laughs> Matt Richmond is there. Like, I kind of watch the games on mute, so like I don't really... Talk my names all that well. Yeah. Uh, listening, listening to podcasts, whatever. So, um, yeah, so like he had a really good connection with like the shooter on the team who would always find, uh, and like Jalen could be that. Um, I think with with Ivy, I did see the reason why I'm, I, I am high on him is because I, I, I actually did see improvement throughout the year, like where he wasn't driving left to start, but he did start driving left and snake in the pick and roll, which is like a good adjustment when you don't trust your left hand to finish. Like a lot of guards just don't finish with their off hand, it's not, it's not rare. Um, you know, so I think Chris, CJ Chris so. Paul is a is a notable uh, person yeah, who like, likes to go right every time. Yeah, exactly. You know, um, CJ Marchesani from the Stepian did. Uh, mm -hmm. I think no, who was it? Some smart person, the guy from Synergy. That was what it is. Uh, Todd Whitehead from Synergy posted in February uh, layup uh, data from all like the top twenty prospects or whatever, and how many times we use it offhand, and like everyone was like ninety percent favored hand, ten percent offhand, mm -hmm. and Ivy was no different. Like people just have. Favorite hands, other than like Johnny Davis, I think random was like 50 50, which is really impressive. Hmm. Um, so he's not, he's not, he's not different in that sense when he's transferring, as long as he can drive left, which if he can snake and then just like explode back, dart to the rim or pull up that, you know, he started to do it. Like he, he, he knows like he can't just uh, turn down driving lanes left all the time. 
Um, and th- when I saw him drive left, I thought the handle was good enough. I don't think he has like a bad offhand dribble. It's just like finishing and going all the way to the rim is something he has to add. But if he can just snake and I don't see him as having all these holes that he needs to add. I just think he has one hole which he needs to add, which is the mid-range in-between game. Um, and I think he can get by for a couple of years just being a rim pressure player, um, you know, um, and, and getting by with that and while, while he adds it. Let me ask you a different question then, uh, from, from a different standpoint. And this is usually a really bad question to ask, but I'll ask it anyways, it's just for fun. Um, so if we draft, so when you, you probably think, I mean, you're a smart guy, probably think this as well, uh, we're going to be bad next year pretty much no matter what. Unless, unless something really unpredictable happens, we're probably going to be bad. Looking at the top of next year's draft, or at least the top seven, eight, I know it never holds up, from high school to to the actual draft, right? But I see Wen Banyama, and then I see five, six guards. And wouldn't it be safer mm. to wouldn't it be safer to draft someone other than a guard, knowing that? I mean, let's call it five out of six times you're probably going to if unless you get really lucky and you actually get Wemby, you're going to be drafting probably or the BPA. Where you're drafting next year will likely be a card as well. <laughs> to be honest, Paolo, like I hadn't even thought of that for a second. And now you've just kind of broken my brain because I'm looking at the draft and you're exactly right. So like a lot of guards. Know, See, that was that one, was when that was the thing you've undone a year of my life. <laughs> that was the thing last year when we were talking about Jalen versus um Mobley yeah. then was hey, you know, if we take Jalen now, next year's draft looks like it's going to have a lot of front court players. So maybe that's kind of the way we can sequence drafting these guys just with the, the, what am I thinking of the term here? Like the dispersion, like the, the range of talent, like in each draft by position, right? The uh, displacement of talent by position, right? Um, this is a yeah. forward heavy draft. Like I said, next year is a guard heavy draft. I do think really that crazy, I do think that next year we really can't be banking on the talent after next year because we kind of want to be moving into not necessarily competing, but at least not bottoming out anymore after next year's draft. So I think taking into account next year's draft is fair play in my opinion. And the, but it's probably the last year that you want to do that. Especially because a lot of them, are very much the archetype of uber athletic guys that will probably play a card. Thompson twins, Wimby, yeah. or not Wimby, sorry, uh, Scoot. Like Scoot yeah. Henderson is like um, he's like fucking incredible man. Like um, watching him, my Joe's yeah. on the floor watching. Him. I was trying to scout um, like Daniels and um, Jaden Hardy, and then Scoot Henderson would come in off the bench. I was like, you're better than all these guys, like easily in your 17. Yeah. Um, so yeah. I don't discount Scoot Henderson as a possible number one pick. Um, just as an aside, um, if we can get like Scooter, Jalen, Chet, oh, fuck me, that's going to be so good. Yeah, to be honest, you've kind of just like just destroyed my entire argument about Jalen Ivy because I didn't even for a second think about next year's draft for whatever. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, let's get Javari Smith, I guess. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's no guarantee that we bought him all the way out again. Right, next year. Yeah, next year. I think we guarantee yeah. the top 11 bit. But, but the thing is, exactly, exactly. Uh, top eight, I, guess. I don't know. Yeah. It gets but exactly. When you look, at least from the thing is, usually you don't take into consideration the draft afterwards because you know, like top three picks, top four picks. The thing is, when you look at like top 10, you're looking very much at 
Wemby and a bunch of guards. So yeah. w- whatever you slot from two to like eight, you're probably going to be in a position where your best player of L was going to be a guard. Like it's that much of a difference. It's like it's so. It's that's why it's worth bringing in because it's crazy. Like I've I don't think I've seen a, a draft with that much depth at one position, at least leading into it. Well, I guess that's the main I will move on if I can segue for you, but surely Shane Sharp yeah. is more off-ball as a possible small forward option. Yeah. That, like you said, perfect segue into Shane Sharp. What have you taken away from watching Sharp's film? I, I haven't been able to do a ton on Sharp. I've watched, you know, the probably same YouTube video scouting stuff that most people have. I think you've watched a, a number of his games. Yeah, I watched. I've watched all these games from AU uh, last time I Nike EYBL basketball. Yeah, twelve games. Um, yeah, I think Sharp is first of all he's like very exciting because he's like the the shiny new toy that like no one's really seen much of, and it's like, well, you know, Jabari doesn't have that higher floor. Paolo's got question marks. Look at this guy who can jump like fifty inches. Apparently, <laughs> we'll see if that holds up in the draft online. Um, I think like Sharp would fit very well because i think he's got like a fantastic three-point shot like uh i have tweeted some videos out you can find out my twitter but like i think his three-point shot is like insanely good um he's such got such a strong frame such a strong body when he goes up with it and like his his self-creation uh, from the perimeter is really good because he he's got like i think the best sidestep and step backs like i've ever seen i think from like a non-nba you know prospect um yeah and like if a body is like six six, like he's he's a bit weak when I saw him. Like he needs to add some strength, which probably already has done because it was a year ago, or nine months ago. Um, but like I I think like him as a small forward, playing off Jalen and KPJ would be really interesting. But, but what he has to add is like so much fundamental stuff and so much like IQ stuff. Like he and it's hard for me to see it because like I I've not watched AU basketball for any of the other guys. I've not watched how did Paolo Banquero look in high school at AU. Like did he give a shit? Did he start? Like, you should. Like, you should. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, how much, you know, like, Shane Sharp is, like, a terrible defender in AU. Like, he he gambles a lot. But, like, I bet every star guard in AU gambles a lot because I can't be bothered to play a real defense. Like, you know, I, I hope he has the tools to be a better defender where once he gets engaged, he can slide his feet pretty well. Um, and he's got a very long wingspan, like a seven-foot wingspan. Um, but you obviously weren't watching those uh, those Chino Hills games where Lonzo was just uh, out there ravaging yeah. people. No, no, no. I kid, I kid, I kid. Go, go ahead. Go I don't ahead. watch any like high school. I only watch college, so it's a little bit unfair to like compare him to to uh, to college players who are like trying to win a championship, or whatever. Um, but the, obviously, the, the big issue with Shaden, which a lot of people pointed out, is that that north south burst in terms of like the first step. So he's got this great vertical leap, but it doesn't have like a quick first step or a very. He doesn't have an elite first step, so he, he struggles to get by people. And I think as I've watched and tried to really watch like every sort of handle or dribble move he has from the top of the key. I think it's more just tendency rather than he can't do it. I think he just falls in love with the outside shot. I don't think it's that he can't get by people. And I think once he does commit to driving, he he can't get by. He's got a good in the first step. And he, he has like a herky-jerky like hesitation move and acceleration. And like he he's like really smart. I was just watching one clip where he was like doing in-between dribbles and he like took a little skip with his step when he's going left, transferred the ball right to left, skips forward, transferred the ball left to right, skip forward. And then he did a skip as if he was about to translate it, sorry, about to transfer back. But then he just kind of did an in and out and moved to his right. So he was like disguising his his dribble move uh, and like his footwork and, and just completely like got past the defender. So like he's got some really advanced like dribbles, but it's you know, he just he just never uses them. He's like he he just he just 
get scared at help. You know, if there's a, a guy with a nail, he just like he just takes just a step back where it's, it should be like you should be inviting help. Like if you drive and help comes, kick it out because he's a good passer as well. Like I, I tweeted a clip of like two minutes of him passing and it's like nothing like wow, this guy is going to get 10 assists or anything. But like he makes good, accurate passes and like he's so good under pressure. I've seen him get blitzed a lot and doubled on the sideline and I've not once seen him like throw the ball away. He's like remarkably calm under blitzes and traps. Like and obviously- that, that was something when I was scouting uh, Cade last year, he yeah. actually didn't handle a lot of traps and, and blitzing. Well, I think some of that also is him being a little bit of a taller guard. Uh, he dribbled yeah. kind of oh, high yeah. and that, that was one thing that led him getting stripped a couple of times. But yeah, it's interesting that you say that just because that was kind of like the hallmark chip, uh, the Hallmark Cade knock on him as a ball handler. So, how do you feel as a comp? And then, and if you say yes, then you just sold ninety percent of Rockets Twitter on taking Cade on sharp number one. Um, <laughs> how do you feel about Jalen Brown as a comp? With um, probably worse defense, but the style, yeah. of, the style of offense that Jalen Brown plays today, like the the really raw, like really raw and on the jump shot, not the best handle, but can do it when he is forcing himself to go downhill. Like that's yeah. also. Yeah, I mean, I think Jalen Brown works because he's got uh, offense around him and like they've found Marcus Mars a point guard and Jason Tatum and all that. And so I think if Jalen Brown was like the second option or first option every night, he would be more questions about him. But I mean, Jalen Brown's still a very good player. So yeah, I, I mean, I kind of like it offensively because I think Shaden can get to 20 points a game, but he'll, he will he will never get to 25, 30 as long if he doesn't get downhill and draw fouls because he doesn't draw fouls either. Like that's how you get from 20 points to 27 points per game. Um, so like, yeah, that sort of outside, it's a very tough shot profile. Uh, very few players can survive off it. Um, but Shaden can because he's just got like a wicked uh, step back jumper and, and, and it's just so pure. Um, but no, I have high hopes for him. Like I think he can get downhill better uh, as long as he just commits to it. Like there's no reason to. He does have a first step. It might not be as elite as like the best vertical leap ever in the NBA, which he might have, but it's better than average. It's a high, above average for a guard, I would say. So before we close out, um, what's just what's your top five? We we know it's it's Cat one, yeah. Ivy two, yeah, and then and then uh, God, I struggle so much with this man because uh, so, we have we have another is, is, on, one 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 more. Yeah. One more stipulation here before you give your list. Is this a best pay, best player available top five, or is this a rocket centric top five? Uh, no, this is BPA. Uh, just okay. for any gotcha. for any team, just big board. Um, gotcha. yeah. should, should it not be the same thing though? <laughs> no, it, I mean, well, no, because you just it can be different. <laughs> okay, no. So, so, so let me ask you, rocket specific then. Um, so you can start well, over. Just, but, okay. Uh, no, what let's finish his board, and then we can make, okay. let him do another rocket specific. What's finish his board straight up, good, and then good. we'll ask the him. board is uh, Chet Ivy, with a caveat that I'm going to watch both of them more and go back over film. I think I'll put Paolo third, Jabari fourth, and Shaden fifth. Although I would not be at all surprised if Shaden like there's something in me that wants to be to put Shaden first. There's something in me, but I just first? can't do it. No, third, third. Oh, third. Okay, third, third. I just can't commit to it, so I think I think you've got to go far. I asked him because the way you were describing him, it looked like <laughs> it looked like a better player. I'm not gonna say it um, because we have a we have a, a very good friend of the show. His name's Brado. I don't know if you ever heard of him, and he's been pushing 
Jabari at Jabari, no, uh, Sharp at three above Jabari and Ivy. So that's why I asked. Um, yeah, what about Rocket specific one? What would you go for? Well, I have to really think I'm fine. I'll check till number one and yeah. then Car East and two. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't really give a shit as long as we get Tari, Chet, Chet and Tari East in a, a one and 17, and I'll be happy. No, I think, um, I mean, Rocket specific, probably Jabari number two, because then we can get, um, uh, you know, uh, a guard next year um, in, the, in the draft. Um, and then probably Paolo, and then, then, then Sharp, and then Ivy. Um, but I would not be disappointed with any, and I think Ivy could play off ball as a third guard. He's, you know, he runs around a lot. He, he can guard multiple positions. He can play off ball. He plays off ball a lot for you anyway. So like, they all fit in a certain sense. None of them are going to be like, this is a disaster. If they had, and this is a question that someone told me to ask, if they had to reach for someone outside of the consensus top five, who would you want it to be? Ethan doesn't count. <laughs> um, That's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. I really like Jalen Duran. I think he's the most slept on player in the draft, but I'm not quite sure of a fit in Houston enough to like you know make it to, to go down for him. It would be interesting if we got four and five or four or five with Ivy and Sharp. Unfortunately, I don't think either of those guys are premier enough for another team to like offer up a lot to get to jump up. Um, but like, if you could somehow trade down and get like Matherin and Griffin somehow, like maybe you trade Wood to move up and like EG to move up, whatever with seventeen. So now you've got like your wing rotation. So you've got like three and D and shooting. I, for some reason, I was like really obsessed when Portland had those two picks, like on Tank on like eight and nine, like for months. I was like, God, imagine if you get like Griffin and Matherin, and you've just got like your wing rotation set for the what, next ten years. What are your thoughts on Keegan Murray? We had some people that were highly advocating Keegan Murray, even in like a pick three or pick four position so just to be honest i've not watched any keegan murray he's the one guy in the top 20 who randomly i've just not watched i have to i have to ponder okay. my question Sorry. yeah i need to watch a good amount of him as well i'm, I'm probably focusing on the top five at least until after the lottery <laughs> and then i'll go down from there you don't have to ask to watch him i, I got the perf- the best comp for any prospect ever he's harrison parts there you go you don't need okay. anything else there we go Goodbye. um all right, so on Harrison Barnes, uh, Pal, do you have anything else to close out with? Um, yeah, uh, make sure you stay tuned for uh, the episode on, on Tuesday. I'm going to be recording. Um, so we're going. To, so we usually record on Tuesdays. Next Tuesday is the lottery, so we're going to record our live reactions to the, to the lottery, segueing that into a pod. Um, so I, I think that's pretty new concept. I, I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So stay tuned for that. Uh, other than that, do you want to just do the outros? Yep. So, of course, you can find me on Twitter at Don Knock. You can follow the pod at ClutchCityCR. Again, thanks to everyone that subscribed on YouTube. Thanks to everyone that watched on YouTube or left a YouTube comment. If you want the YouTube, Apple Podcast, Spotify links, go to the description of at ClutchCityCR on Twitter, and they're all right there. Paolo, tell the people where they can find your stuff. Yeah, y'all can find uh, Paulo Banqueiro's number one stand on Twitter at NBA. That's P-A-U-L-O-A-L-V-E-S-N-V-A. Everything I do from podcasts like this one to the live shows on Twitter spaces will find itself linked on there. And Nathan, go ahead and tell the people where they can find your stuff one more time. I'm Nathan Fogg, one on Twitter, and subscribe to Tea and Rockets, like we're doing Tea and Rockets on YouTube because I'm doing lots of Skyrim reports and uh, going to be doing a lot of playbook-like stuff for 
our young players and like blueprint stuff. I'm going to do a lot of X's and R's for the next season. So check that out. Excellent. And don't forget to watch his Jay and Ivy video because I will be watching that. And the sharp future. one coming out this weekend. I've got a shade and sharp one coming okay. out. Okay. I will probably be watching that as well. So again, Nathan, thanks for joining us. I thought there was a lot of good stuff in this pod. So with that, we're going to close it. And until next time, be safe and go Rockets.